Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. Longtime listeners of this show will know that I have a special interest in learning and in how our brain changes with experience. I spent a lot of years training as an opera singer, and I also did my PhD on the medial temporal lobe, the part of the brain that turns short-term memories into long-term ones. And I've been struck often by the disconnect between what neuroscientists know or think they know about how the brain learns and remembers and how educators teach. And the fault is on both sides. Neuroscientists are often not very good at translating their knowledge to the general public or finding ways of applying it, and educators often find it hard to see how the neuroscience fits in with their years of experience. Brain plasticity has been a hot topic for many years, so hot, in fact, that many people now are quite skeptical when a new book comes out to purport new knowledge or a new understanding, because after all, the brain is not infinitely plastic. There are biological limitations, pretty significant ones, to how much and how fast we can change our brains. So when Stanislas Dehaan's book, How We Learn, came across my desk, I was a little skeptical that A, there would be anything new in it, and B, that we would be able to apply it in any kind of real-world settings. But I have to say, I was pleasantly surprised. He's a very well-respected European neuroscientist, and he and his wife study the infant brain, among many other topics. So what can he tell us about the kinds of brains we are born with and what it takes to mold them into the complex machines that they end up being in adulthood? His book also comes at a time when I've been really interested in artificial intelligence and the way that algorithms shape our society. What is it that we can learn from understanding how our brains are still better than machines? And what might that mean for the future of education? Stanislas Dehan, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Hello, nice to meet you. So I want to start with the the story that you begin your book with, because it, it was really, right from the very beginning, kind of mind-blowing to me. So can you tell us the story of Felipe in Brazil? Oh, yeah, it's, a, it's still a very moving memory for me. Um, I was collaborating with the Serra hospitals in Brazil, they are rehabilitation hospitals, and one day the director of the hospital tells me that they have this little patient that has been on the ward for three years now, three years. And he was hospitalized at the age of three. So half of his life was spent in the hospital. And uh, he essentially was shot by a bullet 
became tetraplegic and blind. And so, you know, I was, I have seen many patients, but I, in this case, I thought I'm going to see essentially a destroyed kid. And I enter the room and not at all. I see this extraordinarily lively kid, Felipe, uh, who was, of course, uh, crippled in bed, but was uh, talking so well. And in fact, he was trilingual. All the nurses around him had taught him different languages. He was absolutely passionate about languages. So he asked me about my French and he asked me to teach him a few words. It turned out that he was uh, writing stories in his head and then he was telling them to other people and they were turning them into little books for him. He could barely touch them. He still had a little bit of touch sense. And um, so I realized, first of all, that, of course, plasticity is extraordinary. But more than that is that um, the human brain projects hypotheses about the world. It projects data. Uh, here, this kid, you know, was deprived of a lot of inputs. He was in the hospital for three years. Uh, he could not move and so on, but he had exactly the same mind powers as any normal child. And that's what I found repeatedly that, uh, for instance, in the book, I speak also about blind mathematicians. You can be blind and you can develop perfectly normal mathematics. It's mostly about the top-down ability of the brain to create uh, extraordinarily fine representations, even in the infant, of numbers, of space, of time, and uh, essentially all that makes a normal mind. Yeah, I, I've also been um, at the same time reading a book by Tara Westover. I don't know if you've heard it about it. It's called Educated. And it tells the story of, of this young girl who went through, you know, just a really kind of traumatic childhood. And she was homeschooled. But really, that meant in her case that she was not schooled at all. And she went off eventually and did a PhD at Cambridge. And, you know, it's just it was just it's, the story there is remarkable at how she could have been deprived of so much education. And yet, you know, retain the ability to learn later on at such a high level. And that goes completely against what I think a lot of us, even neuroscientists, think in terms of how the brain learns, that, you know, it needs the, you know, we have these sensitive periods, we need inputs from the environment, and in the absence of them, these circuits just don't develop. So how do you reconcile that kind of dogma in neuroscience with these observations? Well, I haven't read this particular book, uh, but in, in general, what I explain uh, in, in how we learn is that uh, we shouldn't underestimate the role of uh, nature, uh, the innate components of the mind in the learning process. Uh, we tend to oppose nature and nurture, but I wrote the book in part in order to try to go beyond this silly opposition. It's 100% of both. Um, and, uh, of course, all of our learning algorithms themselves are inherited and they are strongly uh, based on uh, genetic uh, components, the particular receptor molecules, the abilities of the neurons to differentiate and so on. And even cognitive abilities have a strong foundation in evolution. So essentially all of what we call the core knowledge, uh, the innate abilities for objects, for number, for distinguishing objects versus persons, for instance, for understanding the intentions of others, they come in extremely early. And it's very likely that if they are not completely innate, it's very hard to say, you know, to separate what's completely innate from what is already influenced by experience. But at least they come on extremely early to guide all of the learning process. And so, yes, uh, even if you don't have education, you still have these intuitions. Now, you shouldn't, we shouldn't go too far. It's also extremely important 
to have uh, appropriate inputs into the system in order to make it grow and not atrophy. Uh, I'm, sp I'm speaking in particular in the brain of uh, sensitive periods for language acquisition. Uh, presumably, the child that you were talking about had language and was able to acquire language. If you don't get linguistic inputs before the age of about two, you are in trouble. And uh, you are going to have uh, serious difficulties with some of the grammatical constructions of language. So it's a system that both has a lot of innate structure. And in the book, I speak a lot about the innate structure of the infant brain, the beautiful organization that we see right from birth and the abilities that they have in the first year of life. But then that system requires uh, nurturing and nurturing by other humans, this incredible system of education, which is uh, taking advantage of the fact that the infant is attuned to other brains. It's, I think it's very particular to the human brain. We're attuned to others. We get our knowledge from others. And education is essentially capitalizing on this extraordinary ability for us to attend to the thoughts of others. Yeah, and that, that's why you kind of say we should move away from this idea of thinking about homo sapiens to calling ourselves homo docens, uh, as, as this learning being a, a fundamental component of what it means to be human. I think this is one of the singularity of the human species. Um, we have a better learning device. I don't know exactly how it works, and so I do a lot of work in my lab at the moment on this topic. But the hypothesis that I develop in the book is that we have the same sort of foundations uh, as other species, uh, as other primates in particular. So uh, the number sense, for instance, is already found in other species, the sense of probabilities, uh, Bayesian-like computations, as we call them, capacity to compute with probabilities seem to be present early on in many species. But what may be special to humans is the ability to develop symbolic uh, computations, and in particular to develop languages, not just the language that we use for communication, but internal languages that allow us to represent more complex facts. Um, my colleague Elizabeth Spelke thinks, for instance, that, and she has data to, to suggest that uh, without a sort of language of thought, you could not represent a thought like left of the green wall. So something like a thought like that could not be thought perhaps by other species, certainly not in the same articulate manner. Um, we have this sort of explicit system that uh, is present in every child and I think is just not present in essentially all of the other species. This is the system that allows us to be scientists. But what I claim in the book is that every child is a scientist. We make scientific discoveries about the external world all the time during our childhood. We are able to formulate these very abstract thoughts in a sort of internal language. Yeah, and the probabilities and, and sort of the approach there as the mind as a statistician really resonated with me in your book. And yet I have to sort of push back a little bit in, in, the, in the idea that you know, so often we ourselves make mistakes when we think explicitly about probabilities. So I think, you know, I just kind of want to distinguish those two ideas that there's this kind of internal sense of pattern recognition that I think is what you are describing. But then our kind of, you know, a, a lot of the problems that our society faces comes from the fact that, you know, we we don't we don't remember that there is a base rate of something. So, you know, an example from current times right now is the coronavirus. So a lot of people are very much, you know, worried about the coronavirus, but unless you're quite close to the epicenter, the flu is a much bigger, you know, risk for you because of the base rates. Um, so can you just kind of give us a little bit of a distinction there about sort of your approach to how the brain is kind of hardwired or, or, or at least uh, has this propensity to think about probabilities, but then how they, that can fail us uh, in our own lives daily. 
Well, I think there is a tension here between some experiments like Danny Kahneman's research, uh, the Tversky and Kahneman experiments showing, uh, you know, that the brain can fail, uh, and other experiments, more recent ones in particular, that suggest that we are very good Bayesians. We do take into account the probabilities. So some of the differences are in the paradigms. Uh, we're not very good at verbal reasoning with probabilities. Uh, we're much better at incorporating them in our behavior in a more implicit manner. Uh, but we become very good when we speak about numbers. Uh, so uh, there's been some beautiful work showing that as soon as you speak about numbers, it's much easier. So instead of saying there's a one person chance, if you say out of 100 person, there's one that, uh, then uh, reasoning becomes much better. But I want to say something a bit more general. I don't think that humans are just pattern recognizers. I think this is exactly the singularity of the human brain is beyond that. The pattern recognition, the visual recognition, the first 250 milliseconds of processing, they're very much the same in humans and in non-humans, and they're well modeled by artificial neural networks. But we have something more, and that's why also I say in the book that we are superior to current AI. I think that AI has making been making a lot of progress, but we're still way superior. And the reason I think is that beyond pattern recognition, we have a capacity to formulate complex thoughts that are combinatorial. I want to give you a very simple example, a square. You can think of the concept of a square in your mind. You know that it has four equal sides and four equal angles or something. You know how to draw it. There is no other species that seem to be able to uh, think these sort of thoughts. And so when anthropologists find a square on a cave, they immediately know that it was a human uh, that went there. Um, I'm talking about this sort of thoughts, you know, and if, if this idea is right, every child has actually a sort of supercomputing power, uh, which goes beyond uh, other brains. We are able to think um, sort of proto-mathematical thoughts even before we get educated. Of course, the message for educators is that you need to capitalize on that and uh, you should not underestimate what the child brings to the school, for instance. In mathematics, the children way before they go to school have a lot of intuitions and are already into this um, process of learning through a sort of scientific formulation. Yeah, I want to talk a lot about the kind of recommendations you make to educators because I, I think they're really uh, important to think about. Um, but I want to just uh, step back a tiny bit and just talk a little bit about your uh, findings and your the, the research that you describe about the infant brain because I, that to me was really... Um, very novel. Can you can you describe a little bit about sort of uh, and and the the analogy that I really loved, or or you know the explanation that you even when you started at the very beginning of your book is this idea of DNA having a certain amount of information that it can code, right? Um, and that that there simply isn't enough. Uh, you know, like you you just I think ultimately the the calculation becomes it's something like the equivalent of seven hundred and fifty megabytes. Yeah. So the genome uh, cannot really encode so much information. That's true. Nevertheless, the genome can encode a lot of uh, information that leads to a sort of self-organization in the brain. And so uh, talking about my research and especially my, my wife's research, we collaborate together on studies of the infant brain and the child's brain. Uh, my wife was actually the first uh, in 2002 to publish some images of the uh, brain of uh, two-month-old infants. We found ways to uh, scan them with MRI in a completely safe manner. And we've been doing experiments for about 20 years now. So what do we see? The first thing that we see is just the anatomy. The infant brain, when it's born, is extraordinarily well organized. You already see all of the long distance fiber tracks that 
crisscross, you know, the cortex, uh, cortical areas are already specialized to some extent. Uh, you already see all of the sensory systems are properly in place in their proper spots. So it's not at all a sort of hodgepodge that will be instructed by the external world. And this idea of a sort of malleable brain or blank slate is just completely false just by looking at that anatomy. And then, you know, we had these little children listen to language in EMR, and we saw that when uh, they listen to a sentence, th this sort of uh, language input is already channeled into the proper circuits. It goes to the left hemisphere, it goes to the temporal lobe and to Broca's area, which are the classical language areas, even in the adult brain. So I'm not saying that the child already understands the language, but I'm saying that these inputs are going in the right place where there's going to be learning. There are specialized systems in the brain that are dedicated to learning language, and then there are other areas that are dedicated to learning math and to learning objects and so on and so forth. And we can already see them in the infant. So this has been revolutionary. Um, there was a time not so long ago where pediatricians say that at birth uh, there is no cortex working. The cortex is not working. The baby is subcortical. That's not true. There was also a time much more recent where people say before the about one year of age, about 10 months, the prefrontal cortex is not working, the, the part of the cortex which is behind the front of the head. Uh, that's completely false. It's there right from the start. It's slow. It's a very slow system. So the baby is about three times slower uh, than the adult in terms of propagating information in the cortex, at least three times slower. But it's processing the information in a clever manner. And all of the systems are already working. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I wanted to then um, talk a little bit about reading circuitry as that's, you know, that that's circuitry that that I don't think is 
hardwired in because reading is such a new uh, sort of tool that our species has uh, sort of discovered. And so we've had to kind of use circuits that already exist that evolved in order to be able to read. Um, And that can cause a lot of problems for people who are unable to learn to read in the traditional way. And so can you can you talk us a little talk to us a little bit about since your previous book too is about reading um, about sort of how that develops, and then um, what we can learn from learning difficulties. Yes, actually, in how we learn, I return to this topic of reading because I think it's a wonderful example of uh, nature and nurture working together. Um, so you you say, well, there, there cannot be any circuit for reading uh, because, of course, it's a recent uh, evolutionary ability. It's only a few thousand years ago that we invented reading, we invented writing. Yes, that's very true. However, when we scan the brain of readers, we find that it's always the same areas of the brain that are working, even in different languages. Now we scan Chinese children versus uh, French children. We find the same sort of circuit within a few millimeters. So what's going on? Well, it turns out that there is a circuit that's already there in the infant, and it has all of the right connections in order to acquire a connection between uh, the sight of letters and the corresponding sounds. It's a connection that's already there, so it probably evolved for completely different reasons in order perhaps for us to name objects. You know, we need a connection from vision to language in order to name objects. But the connection is there, and we're going to use it. And so essentially the invention of writing was a way to make use of that pre-existing connection. And what we find is that when we learn to read, we recycle that circuit, which originally responds to objects, and nearby there's another circuit that responds to faces. And the more we learn to read, the more that circuit dedicates itself to the shapes of letters and to letter strings, to the connection from letter strings to the corresponding sounds. And the more we do that, by the way, the more the system shifts. And for instance, we see that the face system shifts to the right hemisphere. Uh, so in literate people, there's a slightly different organization of the face system of the brain because essentially we needed space in the left hemisphere for, for reading. And so that occupies space and the face circuit has had to change. So you see this interplay of innateness and learning. Um, and uh, one absolutely remarkable example of that is mirror reading. Uh, you know that uh, children, when they start to learn to read, they will mistake a B for a D, for instance. Uh, and parents are anxious. They think it's dyslexia. It's not dyslexia. It's a universal property of the brain. It's something which is given to us by evolution. We recognize a tiger, whether it's seen in the left profile or in the right profile. And it's just like that for Bs and Ds. The first time a child sees a B and a D, its visual system screams. It's exactly the same. It's the same object because there is mirror invariance in the object recognition system. So this is an excellent case where we have to unlearn something which was given to us by evolution, and that creates a little bit of a problem at school. Teachers should be attentive to that. There are ways to help breaking the symmetry of the system, for instance, by tracing the letters. So indeed, in in how we learn, I I, I take a few conclude. I draw a few conclusions from the, this fundamental research to educators, and the conclusions are it actually helps to trace the letters, but also the fundamental circuit for reading is one that moves from letters to sound from graphemes to phonemes. And this completely fits with education research, which shows that this is the right way to teach uh, reading. If you have a whole word attention and you're just trying to have some kind of correlation between the whole word and the corresponding uh, word in the auditory modality, so the visual word to the auditory word doesn't work. And this is not how the brain works uh, during reading. By understanding 
the learning process itself, I think we can lead to recommendations for educators. So what goes awry when a person does have dyslexia or even uh, you describe a pure alexia too, which, which uh, you know, is, is remarkable to me. So tell, tell us a little bit about what we know about what, what happens when it goes wrong. The failures of the circuit, yes. But uh, you, you have to imagine that there's a whole series of steps through which the written word has to go before it accesses uh, the lexicon and also the sounds of language. And any of these steps can go wrong. But there is a particular bottleneck, which is this visual area that I was just talking about. It's called the visual word form area, and it needs to change and specialize for little strings. And so if you have a little stroke uh, in this area of the brain, you become pure alexic, which is a rather extraordinary condition in which uh, you lose selectively the ability to read. Um, so people wake up one morning, they had a stroke during the night, they wake up in the morning and typically they look, they feel fine. They look at the newspaper and they say, well, why is it printed in Hebrew or in Chinese? You know, they have no idea what's written there. That's exactly the symptom. Uh, spoken language recognition is intact. People can still speak and understand language through the spoken modality, but they cannot recognize the written word. They can still recognize faces. They can still recognize objects. They have lost specifically uh, part of this circuit. So we find uh, dyslexia uh, children that have impairments in that circuit. However, we also think that dyslexia is a bit more complex, developmental dyslexia in children, because uh, it has multiple possible causes. And so we have to distinguish, and this is still a big research program, we have to distinguish children that have visual deficits, children that have uh, phonological deficits at the level of the spoken uh, sounds of language, and probably other levels of the deficits like attention and so on. So it's a circuit, but with focal nodes that must be fully operational in order to provide efficient reading. And I was delighted to see in your section for how we should apply some of this work to education, a complete dismissal of the idea of teaching two learning styles, which, uh, you know, has been a popular, although it's starting, so I think, I think the message is starting to, to come through. So tell us a little bit about why it is just misguided to think that, that uh, different children who do not have any of these uh, sort of, you know, problems in their circuitry uh, would benefit from different, you know, be teaching to their own individual learning style. Yeah, well, I mean, it could have been true, but it turns out that research is showing that the learning styles idea is wrong. I think uh, this is really speaking to the heart of my book. There is one human brain. There is one, it's one particular way of life to be a human. And there is one learning algorithm, which is true of all humans. So we need to feed this learning algorithm in a proper way. And I try to give tricks in the book about, you know, what is the best way to drag attention, to use all of these systems that facilitate learning. And so what the research has shown is that it's not true that there are children who benefit more from being taught in a visual way and others in a spoken manner and the third one by manipulating their fingers. Um, all of us benefit from the same educational methods, and especially the ones that are multimodal. So we all benefit from having multimodal information, but we also all benefit from having rehearsal every day and sleep every night. It's the same algorithm which is working in every one of us. So I'm not, of course, saying that there are no differences between people. The differences are in the speed, uh, primarily in the efficiency with which these different systems are working. So we need to have a little bit more effort for one child and for another, but everybody can learn and everybody has the same basic learning algorithm. So let's talk about those four pillars of learning that you describe. 
Four pillars, absolutely. This is uh, one of the contributions, as I hope, that parents and educators may may read and uh, you know use in their own learning process, maybe. Um, so um, here are the four pillars. Uh, the first one is attention. The second one is active engagement. Then error feedback. And finally, consolidation through sleep. Okay. So each of these is a component of the human mind that we can use in order to facilitate the learning process. Shall I develop one of these in particular? Yeah, I mean, I develop all of them. Let's start with attention, because that's something that also people talk about how, you know, our, our current digital age is really decimating. So, so what is attention? Well, attention is actually not just one system, but a set of systems in the brain that are there to filter the information. What happens is that we have so many sensory systems that we are bombarded with information all the time. And uh, our brain has limited resources, especially at the central level, the conscious level. So attention is a system that selects and presents us with only a subset of information that it is deemed the most relevant. Okay. So this filter is extremely powerful. What you don't attend to, you may not even perceive at all. I think you, you know about the gorilla experiment. Everybody knows about the gorilla experiment. So there can be a big gorilla in your retina in front of you. But if you're not attending, you don't see it. And these are very practical consequences. There, there are some actual practical experiments where professional pilots have been landing their planes on top of another one in a simulator, of course, just because they were distracted on the radio by something very uh, difficult. So we all have this central limit. By the way, once again, it's a universal system. We all have it. Nobody is a multitasker. When it comes to conscious level processing, we can do one thing at a time, and that's it. And it's not true that the new generation, you know, they are multitaskers, they train themselves and so on. It's just not true. We can become multitasker only if we automatize something. So if we don't automatize, we need to attend and select the information. And the message for teachers is you need to be able to draw the attention of the kids to the proper level. Let me go back to reading for a second. This has been this beautiful experiment where kids uh, and young adults were trained to read a new orthography, but half of them were told to attend to the individual letters and the other half were told to attend to the whole world. Completely different results. If you attend to the whole world, you don't even discover that they are letters. You don't see them. And so uh, what I say to educators also is, you know, when a kid says, I don't see what you mean, I don't see what you mean, take it seriously. They are literally not seeing. They have no internal representation because they are not attending at the right level. So you must draw the attention to the proper level and then learning may proceed. And then we get to the, the second pillar, sort of this elaborative idea. Yes, so I, I call it active engagement. It does not mean physical exercise, actually, because some people misunderstand it. It means really uh, internal powers of the mind to project hypotheses on the external world. So what we want is an active child which, which is who is generating hypotheses about what we are trying to teach him. And that is where curiosity plays an essential role. So I think we must have schools that draw on children's curiosity, that feed this curiosity. Um, curiosity is essentially a sort of innate system that draws us to new information. It's actually interesting, you know, at the neuroscience level, I think everybody knows about the dopamine system and the reinforcement systems of the brain. Um, we have a shot of dopamine and a reinforcement of our behavior for all sorts of uh, external reinforcers like food and sex and social contact. 
But in humans, we have also um, a dopamine for curiosity, for external information, for new information. New information gives us a little kick. And that's why we go to the theater and to music. And well, that's why we read books. We have this reward for acquiring new information. We want to keep the system alive in children. And in this chapter, I talk a lot about research in the classrooms that is showing, for instance, that uh, classrooms that um, uh, distract uh, children or classrooms that don't engage the children properly, that just have them sitting there in front of a lecture, they don't work as well as classrooms in which we actually engage children through, for instance, groups uh, or um, questions. There are some teachers that say that half of the time of a lesson should be dedicated to questions from the children. Um, I like this idea very much. I think it fits with the research. And then we get to the pillar that I think is is uh, really important, often forgotten, and and often totally, uh, you know, is is backwards in the education system. And this is the the correcting of errors or the constructive feedback. So, uh, you know, and I and I kind of want to, you know, I think it's you know obviously knowing what when you did something wrong and and how to correct your internal model is really important. But here in California, there's been this idea proposed by Carol Dweck, which I think is not just California, but it's particularly popular in California schools. You know, this idea about a growth or a fixed mindset. And for people who are not familiar, this the the, the growth mindset is one in which you believe that you can improve with practice and effort. A fixed mindset is this idea that whatever skill, intelligence, you know, musical ability, mathematical ability you're talking about uh, is innate and has a, has a fixed property. And, uh, you know, a, I, a lot of uh, pushback has happened recently against the idea of mindsets because the interventions that try to encourage a growth mindset have failed. Um, so I, I want to sort of get your thoughts on, you know, this idea of the importance of, of errors, of making errors, but also to, to hear your thoughts on, you know, what is the best way to implement this? Because a lot of people have tried and not had any success. Hmm. So I knew, of course, when writing about the controversy, uh, it goes in both directions. There is a lovely uh, science paper this summer by Carol Dweck and others showing in a pre-registered manner in a really methodologically impeccable manner that there is an effect of a mindset intervention. Um, I personally speculate that maybe in, in the US in particular, you have an extraordinarily positive mindset already. <laughs> and I think maybe this experiment should be done in France where we have this extremely negative and fixed <laughs> mindset about ourselves, you know? So uh, this is just a speculation, but maybe, maybe what she's suggesting is already present in most of the classrooms. And uh, it's only for a subset of children that this actually works as an intervention. But the general idea is completely right, I think. Um, first of all, it's true. Every child can learn. We started this interview talking about this in the case of extremely handicapped children, but it's true, of course, of the normal brain. Every child can learn. And this is something that uh, the music teachers uh, know very well. I like uh, to uh, compare what happens in schools to what happens in music uh, teaching. Music teachers know very well that the children are not perfect to start with. They have a completely relaxed attitude to errors. Of course, you're going to make errors when you try a new music piece. And even as an adult, even as a skilled professional musician, that's what you're going to do. But that's okay, because that's the way you learn. Everybody starts learning by making mistakes and having to make effort. There are some children who think that because they have to make an effort in math, for instance, they are not gifted. That's ridiculous. Everybody, even the professional mathematician, has to sweat uh, with mathematical problems. It's not easy. 
it's, it, we all have the same brains again. Um, so I think that this is uh, just uh, something that we have discovered now that making errors is the only way for the brain to change itself. What happens is that in this active engagement process, the brain generates some predictions and then it receives signals from the external world. The difference between what was predicted and what was received is called the prediction error, the error in predicting what was going to happen. If there is an error, the brain uses that signal as a way to change itself. The error will propagate through the brain, and we see that, in fact, a lot of the messages that are exchanged between brain areas are error signals. And it, the error is being used in a sort of feedback manner in order to change the internal representation. And by the way, this is the basic principle behind most of AI today, most of the artificial neural networks, error back propagation in all sorts of clever ways that I don't have time to describe. So I think this is a fundamental principle for brains and machines. And it means that making errors is just completely normal. It's not something that should be punished. It's maybe even something that should be rewarded because it's an occasion for learning. I just want to remind our listeners that Stanislaus's book, How We Learn, Why Brains Learn Better Than Any Machine, is now available at booksellers everywhere. And um, let's just end with the fourth pillar, which I know my friend Matt Walker, who wrote the book Why We Sleep, will be silently cheering. Tell us the fourth pillar and why you think it's so important. Yeah, the fourth pillar is consolidation. As long as something that you've learned is not automatized, as long as it's not very efficient, it will you know, take some of these central resources and you cannot do something else at the second time. And, and yes, it happens that uh, in the human brain, sleep is a fundamental component of this process. And I have to say the chapter on sleep, I had to read a lot, to read a lot because this was not my field, but I was amazed at the remarkable discoveries that have been made in this field in the past 20 years. So first of all, it was discovered that after sleeping, without having done any special practicing, uh, you wake up with uh, better behavior than the night before. Maybe you try some video game, you reach saturation, you sleep on it, and the next morning you're better. What happens? You did not rehearse? Well, in fact, this is the second discovery. The neuroscientists have found that there is rehearsal during sleep. The brain is not at all inactive during sleep. And in fact, some neurons are repeating in a very fast manner, replaying what was happening during the previous day. And they are making a sort of mental simulation many, many times of what was happening during previous day, consolidating, enhancing, deepening the knowledge of the previous day. And so uh, that's why sleep is so important. And there are so many empirical uh, confirmations of this, uh, of this point. Children in particular need to sleep. It's an essential component of the learning process. Uh, there is even a sort of regulation mechanism where you sleep deeper and longer when you have had more learning. And this is particularly true for adolescents. So I end up in the book by citing this lovely research suggesting that you need to delay uh, school uh, for adolescents because the phase of their uh, night rhythms is shifting a little bit. So they have trouble getting into bed at night, but they have trouble waking up in the morning. If you adjust the school system to uh, their internal sleep cycles, the learning is much better and you get remarkable improvements uh, in the grades, but also in the dropout rates and so on. So sleep is a essential component of the learning process. It's one third of our lives. We need to use it better. Stanislas Dehan, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds and, and sharing your knowledge with us. Thanks a lot for your wonderful questions. 
So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of this show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Cheng, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Raihala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Ewald, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. I'll see you next week. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.